Will you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6? It's page uh, 1177 in the Church Bibles. And we're going to read this together. Oops. Um, the gifted young men have been preaching through Ephesians, but they have given this old guy the passage on children and parents and slaves and masters. So I'll do what I can with the gifts that have been given. So let's read it together. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. If the chief end of man is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever, what's the chief end of relationships? It's to glorify God in them and enjoy him forever through them. Paul begins this letter to the Ephesians with worship, and a repeated refrain in that worship section is to the praise of his glorious grace. Tonight, we are looking in chapter 6, the passage I've just read, verses 1 to 9, how in relationship we live to the praise of of his glorious grace. And we're given two relational scenarios. He's continuing this section of practical instructions regarding a gospel-shaped life. Um, we looked a couple of weeks ago at husband and wife, and here's another two dimensions of relationships. One commentator speaking about these three different scenarios said, um, Paul is addressing the members of the church regarding three sets of relationships in sexual relationships between wife and husband, in temporal relationships between children and parents, and in material relationships between slave and masters. We're looking at the temporal and the material relationships tonight. I'm just going to cut a bit out since our time is short. Okay, how is God honored 
in relationships. A couple of general points to make from this passage first. Relationships honor God when Christ is recognized in different duties. Um, Just look at the passage again. Children are to obey parents in the Lord. Fathers are to bring up children in the training and instruction of the Lord. And there are three commands to slaves, each one with a reference to Christ. Verse 5, obey just as you would obey Christ. Verse 6, obey like slaves of Christ. Verse 7, serve as if you are serving the Lord. Verse 8, the Lord will reward. And the masters, they are reminded in verse 9 that they share a master with their slaves. Their master, their Lord, is in heaven. God is honored in relationships when Christ is at the center of them. When Jesus isn't the reason for doing our duty, God is not honored. When Jesus is not the standard by which we judge our relationships, when Jesus is not the motivation and the reward in all our relationships, God is not honored. It is not honoring to go to these verses and mine from them vague principles of conduct or extract out of them a list of how-tos to achieve successful family life or work relationships and ignore that running through them there is the presence and definition and defining presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we read these passages, whatever our duties, our responsibilities are, our prayer should be, Lord Jesus, let people see you in me. Um, as a child honors, as I honor my father and mother, Lord Jesus, let people see you in me as a father or mother who nourishes my children. Let my children see you in me as a slave who serves an earthly master with an eye to Christ. Let all people see Jesus in me or as a master who shares the same destiny and the same master as the slaves who believe, let them see Jesus in the way that I exercise my authority. So we honor Jesus explicitly in our relationships, and God is honored. God is glorified when Jesus is brought into this, not just assumed at the start and then forgotten about, but constantly brought in as the reference point and brought in as the motivation and power to live to the glory of God. I want to say a bit more about that. Relationships honor God when the empowerment comes from the filling of the Spirit. These commands that we're reading here flow logically in Paul's thought from verse 18 of the previous chapter. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, and then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so Paul would want to say to children and parents and slaves and masters, my papyrus is short. I haven't got the space to add these things in to make my point. You must fill in the gaps. So, children, be filled with the Spirit and obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and mother as you are filled in the Spirit. Parents, be filled with the Spirit And bring your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Slaves, be filled with the Spirit and obey and serve as if you would serve Jesus. Masters, be filled with the Spirit and treat your slaves in the same way you want to be treated. 
Now, doing this kind of life is not easy. It's not natural. It's gospel. It's new life. It is Holy Spirit-born life. It is Christ in our hearts through faith kind of life. When we get the strength and the motivation to do our duty, to do these things from the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, well, God gets the glory, doesn't he? When I am consciously aware that it is the Holy Spirit who's stopping me, ruining a relationship with my child by losing my temper for the umpteenth time they've done the same annoying thing. Are we nearly there yet? They're looking out my window. Uh, You know, I don't know if you've ever had that uh, as a parent. Um, When you're enabled to carefully bring them up with a reference to their particular individuality and their uniqueness, you do that in the power of the Spirit with the strength of Christ, and Christ gets the glory for that. You don't get Dad of the Month awards. Jesus gets the award, and that's how he's glorified in it. So obedience and submission. Relationships between children and parents Slaves and masters. God's wisdom is displayed when this takes place. These relationships are are not the same. They're asymmetric. Um, There are different expectations from children and parents, slaves and masters. Now, it's obvious. Paul's taking for granted that these differences are there. Obedience meets legitimate authority, and we see God's glory shone forth. Now, Obedience and authority, they're dirty words in contemporary society. Authority is distrusted in every sphere of modern life. It is satirized with wherever it is found. Stand-up comics leave no authority untouched. Um, Whatever it is, whether it's church authority, political authority, um, academic authority, parental authority... uh, Uh, journalistic authority, they're all the subject of the stand-up comics satire. And likewise, children have role models that define defiance and rebellion. That's the thing that you should follow. Um, Give you another example. Uh, Think of Disney cartoons. Who who are the characters that we are to emulate in the Disney cartoons? In, In a lot of them, it's the sassy, adventurous, young female who rebels against the stupid, ineffective, weak old father. Um, take the Little Mermaid. Neptune is just a blustering old man, and who should listen to him, whereas Ariel is really the interesting character, the brave one, and everything else. Or take Mulan, if you've ever watched it. Or Beauty and the Beast. It's the same narrative again and again. Contemporary culture honors disobedience, disrespects authority. But Paul teaches us that God is honored in obedience, when it respects legitimate authority. And God is honored when legitimate authority is exercised to his glory. Well, let's just look now at these, uh, more closely at these different relationships. Children who glorify God in obedience and honoring their parents. Um, 
Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Well, uh, that's the first of two reasons. This is simply right. It is part of the way God has made things that children should obey. Um, It's not a terrible thing. It's a good thing. Um, Paul says to Timothy that disobedient children, children who are disobedient to parents, is a mark of the terrible times of the last days. He says to the Romans that, in his letter to the Romans, that the disobedience of children is a proof that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Disobedience marks our pre-Christian existence. Um, We are called to the obedience of faith through the gospel. And that should also then show itself out in mutual relationships as we submit to one another, as we obey God through his representatives in our life. So do this, for it's right. It's just the right thing to do, Paul says. And the other reason is the promised reward that will come your way through obedience and honor. It comes with the commandment, the first one with a promise. Obedience and honoring parents makes things go well, and you will enjoy life in the earth, he says. There's a promise. And Paul widens the original reference of the commandment from the covenant land to the whole earth, because the gospel is now universal. It's not just for the Jews, it's for the Jews and the Gentiles, as has been saying to the Ephesians. Notice, obedience is in the Lord. That's a very important term. Obey your parents in the Lord. I understand that to remind us that children are also being addressed in this letter. Um, Paul is preaching, and he's specifically preaching through this letter to the children in the midst of the congregation. They've not been taken out to Sunday school. They're in there listening to all this theology that we've been blessed with hearing and preached on uh, earlier. Children um, are in Christ. They're part of the covenant family in Christ. They've been included in the covenant blessings in Christ and the covenant requirements in Christ. Go back to the beginning of the letter. Children have been blessed in the heavenly realms with all spiritual blessings in Christ. They have been chosen in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. Obey your parents in the Lord. You're part of the covenant, children. In the Lord Jesus himself, you have an example and the empowerment of obedience and honoring parents. Think of the example that Jesus gives to children. Luke tells us he was obedient to his parents. Was Jesus diminished? By being obedient, was it less of a life for the Son of God who came in human flesh to obey uh, his parents? Does he not show us a better way than contemporary society would have us? He's the example for children to follow. But Jesus also is the new life that's in that obedience and honor in all of the child's development. Luke tells us in Chapter 2, verse 40, that the child grew. Jesus, he grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was with him. That's a profound truth for 
our children. Jesus was a baby in the womb to sanctify babies in the womb. He was born to sanctify newborns. He was an infant to sanctify infants, a child to sanctify childhood, and an adult to sanctify us to maturity. In all ages and stages, Jesus provides the example and the power to glorify God as infant, toddler, child, adult, teenager even. In the Lord, from conception to maturity, we have the power to live a holy life to the glory of God. And what that looks like at one age will differ from another age. Obedience will change as we become more mature um, as adults. Honor will always remain as an obligation and a joy and a delight. Um, Obedience morphs a little bit, and if you're a parent, you know that, don't you? So, children glorifying God in obedience and honoring of their parents. But there's the other half. Parents glorifying God in the nurture of their children. Now, he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, honor your father and mother, and then he goes on to fathers. Um, Fathers can sometimes mean, in just the way that Greek works, parents, funnily enough. In Hebrews chapter 11, Moses' parents is a translation of fathers, a literal translation there. Moses' fathers hid him, but, well, what the writer means is Moses' parents hid them. Father can sometimes stand for father and mother. I want to suggest here that Paul really is addressing fathers in a particular sense because the letter is full of references to the fatherhood of God. Go back to his second prayer in chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason... I bow my knee before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul's told us in the gospel we are adopted out of earthly patriae to the patria of the pater in heaven. So you've got this wordplay really. Father is pater. Uh, fatherhood is patria. Um, so we have earthly patria. We have the tribes or the ancestors from which we come. And in the gospel, that's now changed. There's a new fatherhood or patria or tribe, and it's united in Christ under the heavenly father, Jew and Gentile, one new man together, Paul's been telling us. Jesus came to reveal the father to us. We are dearly loved children, he says in this letter, and called to live a life of love. Earthly fathers, as you bring your children up, you are to reflect the heavenly father. That's our, our uh, huge burden and privilege. Think about it. Our heavenly father does not exasperate his children. He does not provoke his children to wrath and tears. He does not steal away our breath 
in discouragement. Our Heavenly Father does not neglect us and cause us to be exasperated. Unlike Roman fathers, our Heavenly Father does not farm us out for the first years of our life to a servant to bring us up or wait until we pass the dangerous years of infancy before we're even given a proper name in the family. Our Heavenly Father adopts us and cares for us Himself. Our Heavenly Father is not always expecting us to do more than we are capable of doing to our exasperation. He's not that type of father who always leaves their children with the sense that somehow he's a little bit dissatisfied with them and that no matter what they do, it never seems to be quite enough to make daddy happy. He's not that kind of father. Our heavenly father does not give his love with conditions based on our performance. In contrast, he nurtures us. Paul uses the phrase, brings us up. Think of bringing up and nourishing a plant, in this case, a person, bringing up with all the complexities. Plants are easy compared to children. Plants stay still, my goodness. Um, The Heavenly Father tempers all his requirements to our ability and strength. He never gives us something to do that's beyond us. He knows our individual quirks, our needs, and he tailors his upbringing to each one of us. If you have one child, you're an expert in child rearing. Once you've got two children, you know that no theory works because children are so different. How can children be so different from the same parents? Well, God has made them, that's why. And what works with one child will not work with another child. A loving father knows this and brings them up. Our Heavenly Father trains us to value his discipline. Sometimes it's painful, but always, always the aim of his discipline or his training that Paul talks about here, the aim of that is life. God wants, he disciplines us that we may share in his holiness, that we may live. That's the point of discipline, not to destroy the spirit or the heart of a child, but to make them live, to give them possibilities. It is a discipline to learn a language, to go through all the paradigms of the verbs and remember which is feminine and which is neutral, all that kind of thing. What's that got to do? If you don't go through that discipline, you don't have the pleasure of reading and speaking a different language with all that gives to you. There's a pain in learning it. There's a discipline in learning it. But the point of it is the life that comes out of it. And that, in a far bigger sense, is why parents are given the job to discipline. Our Heavenly Father disciplines us for life. Our Heavenly Father instructs us, as Paul says about earthly fathers, instructs us, teaches us in the way of the Lord. Earthly fathers, you do well if you do likewise. You will glorify your Father in heaven as you match his fatherliness and fathering. Lead by example. Do my children see in me a man under the training and the instruction of the Lord? The fear of the Lord in my Father's heart 
is the beginning of wisdom in the father's upbringing of the children. Bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Are you fearing the Lord? Are you a man under authority like other people under authority? That will add authority to your fathering and God will be glorified. Let's move on to slaves. Slaves and masters. Wow. How are we going to apply this to the present day? I'm looking around. I don't see any slaves in here. Is there a slave in here? Put your hand up if you're a slave. Are you an owner or a master? Somebody moved there, but it's like an auction, Chris. It's like an auction. If you move and I ask a question, um, yeah, you're, you're pointed at. So there are no slaves and masters. Thanks to Christianity, thanks to the gospel, thanks to people like Wilberforce, evangelicals, who... Um, with the gospel, showed the world the incompatibility of slavery with the humanity and dignity of men and women made in the image of God and redeemed by Christ. How do we apply this, though? Hmm? Most commonly, we apply this to the sphere of employment. And so we could read these verses and substitute workers for slaves and employers for masters. Let's just read the, verse, the verses Um, in this way. So we could say, workers, obey your earthly employers with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like a slave of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he's a Um, a worker or an employer. And employers, treat your workers in the same way. Don't threaten them since you know that he is who is both their employer and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. It's kind of clunky, isn't it? It is kind of clunky to apply it to employment or to the material uh, sphere, but that's There's a lot of thought can go into that. If you prayerfully go through that and pray that for your life, it will transform and it will encourage the way that you work in the workplace and certainly the way, if you are an employer, how you treat those who are under you. You will not take advantage of those. You will not pinch their achievements as an employer of your your subordinates to boost yours at their expense. You will be like Christ. You will boost them at your expense. Um, If you're a worker, you want Christ to be glorified in all that you do, um, in all the relationships, even with bad bosses. And sadly, as society changes, there are many who are bad examples of bosses. However, I want to apply these verses in a slightly different direction. Paul is contrasting two material states of being and relationships between these two states. He's contrasting slave, who is owned, and free, who owns. If you are a Roman slave, in that society in Ephesus, you've lost out in the lottery of life. Fortuna, the goddess, has dealt you a hard blow, but you've just got to suck it. You may be able to escape your lot in life because some slaves did and they even became richer than their owners. 
But as a slave, you're starting from the lowest starting place materially. If you're a Roman freeman, you have won the lottery of life. Um, You're a Roman, and it is the race to be in that day and generation. Um, If you can afford slaves, then fortuna has shone upon you. You have won the lottery of life. You, You are wealthy, and you have status. So what are the equivalents in terms of material states in our day? What's the equivalent to being on the bottom of the rung, slaves, and being on the top of the rung? Well, is it wealth? Wealth seems to be the things, particularly in the United States. Is it class, upper class, middle class, upper middle class, upper, upper middle class, whatever? Um, Is it status and achievement? My son is a professor my son is a doctor. Is it, is, is it, is it the, are these things versus those with the lowest expectations from their lot in life? I'm on a housing scheme. I'm third generation, unemployed, welfare dependent. I find meaning and I survive through life either by stealing or by substance abuse, or addictions of one kind or another. What's the equivalence in our day and age? Paul would say to those, however you may define them, on the lowest rung of life, with the hardest lot in life, that they can transcend that material status with the gospel, with heavenly aspirations. God can be glorified in the housing schemes, even in the worst places, even on the streets, there are opportunities to glorify the Lord. The gospel transforms your status. Don't use your poor circumstances, your slavery, as an excuse for a lazy life or a hypocritical life or a stealing life or a moaning life. Don't live half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. For whenever you start from in Christ, there will be opportunities to change and to magnify the greatness of Jesus. This was revolutionary in Rome, in Roman society. The slaves, and what, half a million slaves in, in Ephesus? About that, you know, I mean... Unbelievable. Um, that's what the commentator says. But like statistics, it could be wrong. Like UNICEF even could be wrong as well. But, you know, it's a huge number, isn't it? And so many of them became believers. And they're sitting down beside their masters who own them. And they're worshipping. And they're singing songs and singing the Psalms and taking communion together. It was revolutionary. It changed the way Roman society started to look eventually at slavery. And it started to end. So you're down in the bottom rung of existence. You're a slave. You're not going to go there and manipulate your way uh, into a better life. You're going to, not going to be saying something and doing something else, depending whether you're being watched uh, by uh, your master. Because you know, under the eye of Jesus, he sees everything that you do. He knows everything of your background. And he expects everything 
with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, he will say to those in the poorest place, look towards the eternal reward. That's what he said to the slaves. The Lord will reward. No matter how low you are in this life, it's not worth comparing with the eternal pleasures at his right hand. There is glory to be revealed, and that which is first will be last, said Jesus, and that which is last will be first. The Lord will reward for whatever good you do. Now think about this. Jesus was Lord of all. He was the Son of Man before whom the powerful of this world will scream in fear at his revelation. The Son of Man came and became the servant of all. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If ever there was an example for those on the bottommost rung, for the slaves of this world to follow, there is Jesus from the highest to the lowest, from majestic heights to servitude. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And lastly, masters glorifying God in their relationships to their slaves. Well, we've, we've looked at the, the changing of the application. Think about this. If you're on the upper rungs of life, no matter how far along the racetrack of life you've run, no matter how much you've done, uh, outdone others in that race, the master doesn't show favoritism to you. I've got a degree. I come from a good family. I've worked hard. I've got money in the bank. I have good clothes. God doesn't look at that. The father does not show partiality. On the outside, he looks at the heart. There's no fast track, inside way of getting there. You know how, I don't know if you've ever played this with other people. Um, how much did you pay for this? You know, I got it on Amazon for that. Or how much did you pay for this pass? You know, we, we, we kind of, the race is to the swift and to the one who, who um, manages to out-Google the neighbor. And it's, it's like, I've achieved this. And God's not like that. You know, no matter how fast you are in life, we all start from the same point with God. And so, masters, you are, remi- you are reminded that your money, your achievements, your status in the world give you no advantage over others when you stand in the presence of the commander, the Lord, the master in heaven. Remember, Sunday by Sunday, when you sit beside your slave and receive communion, you don't get more or better bread or more, or better wine. God doesn't look at your rich clothes and think, oh, I must give more blessing to him, and look at the slaves' clothes and say, oh, I must give lesser blessing to them. As Paul has just said, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The wealthy, they're baptized in the same water as the poor. How much God is honored when rich and poor, first and last, slave and free, the haves and the have-nots, sit together 
in the church. Love one another in Christ as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This is revolutionary, and the world needs to see it. I want you to think about Paul's first prayer for the Ephesians as a way of applying this whole business of God-honoring relationships. Chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul's praying for four things. To know four things. If he's praying for the Ephesian church, for slaves and masters and children and parents, he's wanting them to know four things. He's wanting them to know the glorious Father better and better. He's wanting them to know the hope to which the Father has called them. He's wanting them to know the Father's glorious inheritance in the saints. He's wanting them to know the Father's incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, how is that prayer answered? How do they, or how do we, get that fourfold knowledge? Is it a matter of reading more and praying more and believing more? Well, these are so important. But the knowledge Paul is praying for is not just a theoretical knowledge, it's an experiential knowledge. It's a knowing in and through doing. It is not a mind knowledge. The Father doesn't answer this prayer by increasing our mental capacity to know things, but our heart capacity to know things. And the heart stands not just for the affections, but for our thoughts and our wills, how we cherish and treasure. We do that with the heart, and he wants us to know that in our heart. Heart knowledge comes to the day-to-day ordinary life of relationships, God-honoring relationships, when we learn to love as Christ loved the church, or we learn to father as the glorious Heavenly Father fathers, we get to know more about Him and His fatherly love, and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When your child or your spouse or your slave or your master or your father (laughs) disappoints you, turn it into prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the patient love that you have for me that forgives all the many times I've disappointed you and let you down. Heavenly Father, may my disappointments in relationships cause me to thirst more deeply for a relationship with you which always satisfies. May I know that power that's like the power of resurrection in my life. I fail as a father, I fail as a child, I fail in in making the best of my circumstances or as an employer or an employer, I fail as a husband, I fail as a spouse. And when that happens, let me lay hold of his great power. Then I'll know the power and the Father will give his power. We will submit and obey and the Lord 
will get the glory in all of that. It's the hope of future reward, the inheritance in the saints. Um, That enables us to accept temporal hardship and loss, giving up things now because we want to do good and we're looking forward to eternal pleasures at his right hand. We can accept with that in mind a lifetime of relational challenge, disappointment, whatever. We learn to live with disappointments in our lot in life. I'll never be well, I'll never be the youngest person to swim the English Channel because that's been done. I'll, I'll, I'll never achieve, I'll never be a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist or whatever your ambition is, learning to live with your disappointments. I'll never, ever be able to preach the perfect sermon because every time you've got to repent after that in some way or another. Well, you can live with these disappointments with the hope of future reward. Um, When we know the hope to which he has called us, we can lay down our life in love, honor our parents, nurture our children, serve an earthly master, treat the inferiors as though they were equal to ourselves and equally loved by our master in heaven. Well, how much do you know these things? How much do you want to know these things? May the Lord make clear to you the answer to these questions. Let's pray. In all things, Heavenly Father, may you be glorified. May we be satisfied. Help us to rest in Christ, to be glad in him, to cheerfully do our duty as you have laid it out to us in the gospel seeking reward from you in all that we do, not demanding from others to meet needs that only you can meet, but giving to others because you have met our needs. Help us in this day and age when relationships are breaking down to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, to show forth Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the church, to your glory. Amen.